Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It's February the 3rd, 2022. It's my favorite day of the year, or my favorite date. It's my birthday. So, uh, it's not a day I usually, when I do this introduction to the show, I forget the date, but this one is hard for me even to forget. It's an interesting date, though, uh, in addition to the fact that it was when I was born back in 1960, many years ago. It uh, seems as if there's some fascinating news beginning to break about the news industry itself breaking yesterday and today. Uh, over $220 billion was wiped off uh, the value of Meta, which is essentially Facebook or the old uh, Facebook, uh, now re renamed itself, uh, hopefully, I guess, Meta, incredibly significant, $220 billion, all in a day. Uh, and that's partly, I think, because Facebook, at least according to the Wall Street Journal, the other headline was from the Financial Times, traditional news journalism is that Facebook is beginning to feel, at least according to the journal, uh, a $10 billion sting from Apple's privacy push. Apple is changing the internet. Finally, the advertising model that Facebook has prospered off for uh, 15 years is beginning to be undermined. Meanwhile, lots of other interesting news about the evolution of the news business. The New York Times, an authority, the authority in U.S. news, I always find it um, uh, annoyingly priggish, but it is, uh, it is uh, the, the prig in charge of American news. They hit 10 million subscriptions. That's paid subscriptions. I'm a subscriber. I pay money because even if the, the tone and lack of humor of the New York Times annoys me, it's still essential reading, and I'm willing to pay for that. In other words, news is economically viable, or it's becoming, once again, economically viable. Meanwhile, the truth problem, the bias problem on the internet, which has preoccupied many of us for years, perhaps is being challenged, not by the companies themselves, but by um, internet users, power users. Um, according to the Times, Spotify's Joe Rogan problem isn't going away. And it's not going away because uh, writers like Roxanne Gay, who has a column in the Times today, has decided to take her podcast off Spotify in the same way as Neil Young and Joni Mitchell decided to take their music off Spotify because they objected to the um, they objected to the Rogan show. All this is extremely interesting. That's my most fascinating news of the day, but a real authority on the most fascinating news of the day is my guest today. His name is Dave Pell. He has a daily newsletter called Next Draft, um, which is uh, a series of links to the most fascinating news of the day. So he knows more about the news, certainly, than I do. And Dave also has a new book out, Please Scream Inside Your Heart, Breaking news and nervous breakdowns in the year that wouldn't end. Um, this is a book about 2020, but it's incredibly relevant in February 22. I'm thrilled that Dave is joining us from Sausalito, just north of the Golden Gate Bridge, uh, 
two or three miles from where I am in San Francisco. Dave, have I picked out important news of the day or am I being overly optimistic? It always seems as if people pick on uh, bad news, but all this seems to be fairly good news to me about the future of the news industry, which you're an authority on, both a participant and um, a commentator. Well, first of all, happy birthday. I'm not sure if this is uh, the gift that you had in mind, me, for your birthday, but I hope I can live up to the, the moment here. No pressure, uh, Dave. You better be good, otherwise you're going to ruin my birthday. I know. I wish you had told me so I could have at least jumped out of a cake to start this interview. You could have dressed uh, up. You could have worn a tie. Yeah, that's true, but that would be bad for the uh, internet industry brand that I've been raised in. So, um, yeah, I think and, there's... And, and one other thing, Dave, and, and then I'm going to try and uh, shut up. Uh, you are, I don't know where, who first called you, but you are the self-appointed managing editor of the internet, uh, uh, at least according to your, uh, your Twitter page. And often people call you the managing editor of the internet. So uh, there's only one managing editor of the internet and I've got him on my show on my birthday. So that's very exciting. Yeah, that's pretty good actually, now that I think about it. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think there's some good news in the, in the media today about news and um, I'm not sure if all of it is as meaningful as it might seem like it is. Um, I've definitely been interested in the Joe Rogan protest. That's been obviously a story that's captured all of our imaginations. Um, what do you make of that? Do you think it reflects, I mean, Neil Young is a, is a, is a fellow Marin resident. Um, is, 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 uh, is Young the hero or the goat of all this? Uh, I mean, I think he's a hero in that he took a stand and made the point that this type of misinformation is so, you know, potentially deadly, among other things. Um, and it's cool that an old rocker sort of took a stand. I think the the moment that it took a, sort of a more dire turn, if it has at all for Spotify, was actually when Joni Mitchell joined him. Yeah. Because Neil is sort of a loner. You know, at least that's my impression. And he goes his own way, although Crosby, Stills and Nash have also joined him in the boycott, which is the first time those guys have been together, even virtually in a long time, especially David Crosby and Neil Young. So that was yeah, interesting. They, they, they have a history, those two, don't they? Yeah. But but Joni Mitchell is really like a cult figure among a lot of today's most popular female artists from Brandy Carlisle to Taylor Swift. And I think the threat that somebody like Taylor Swift might be moved by somebody like Joni Mitchell, which is not uh, that small of a threat, probably got Spotify to at least say they put warning labels on Rogan's podcast. But the problem with those warning labels, like so much else in our discussion of the media, is that it's really uh, both sidesism. Um, they didn't agree to put a warning just on Joe Rogan's podcast. They decided to put a warning label on any of their podcasts that discuss COVID. And so in a way that almost elevates Rogan to the level of the more scientific discussions on the topic. Um, so I'm happy that the conversation is being held uh, and that people are taking a stand. I'm not too uh, bullish on the idea that Spotify is going to cut their $100 million investment in Joe Rogan, who somebody in the media described as his podcast is like dropping a new Taylor Swift album every day because he's so popular. So It's not his fault, Dave, that he's so popular. He's good at what he does, and he oh, doesn't yeah. claim to be the BBC or the New York Times, does he? No, no. 
you just asked me if I, my general thought about people standing up to um, potentially dangerous information. Yeah. No, I mean, I'm sure most podcasters in the world and radio people in the world are jealous of Joe Rogan. And, I totally uh, am. Yeah, you know, so uh, it's not that everything he does is terrible either. It's just that this information in particular at this moment in history has been adding to a level of damage. But I think in the broader scheme of things, it's more troubling that people listen to it and believe it than or are willing to even bet their lives on it than it is that Joe Rogan is broadcasting it. That's really the bigger problem that we've had uh, a sort of lessening in our trust of institutions, a lessening in our trust of science um, and a more open willingness to accept uh, opinion from those who may not be at all well-informed on a topic. And the problem is that's coming at a moment when that topic really is life and death. When you look at the numbers now, uh, almost everybody who's dying of COVID right now is unvaccinated or at least unboosted. And that's just a shame. You know, I don't, I don't think the yelling match over the topic is particularly helpful First of all, we live in entirely different media universes, so we're all just yelling into a void anyway. Um, but I do think it's uh, sad, basically, and I wish that people had more faith in uh, government institutions, more faith in science in particular, uh, so that we weren't having this problem. And to a certain extent, the really the deeper problem is more faith in each other you know, we, we got to a point in this country, I felt in 2020, when the quarantine first hit, that we were so ripe to be brought together after what was a lot of divides over some big issues, but a lot of frivolous ones also, where hate sort of became a sport in America, and picking its side became a sport in America. And the virus really gave this opportunity where we were all faced with a common microscopic enemy that was attacking us through the air we breathed and it would have been this perfect moment to sort of say hey let's put the small things that we have different aside and join in something we have in common which is we all want to protect ourselves we all want our kids to be safe we all want our grandparents to be safe from this virus well we're going to talk about the book but briefly dave i'd like your comment um on the new york times is 10 million uh, subscribers and also on the facebook uh news that they lost 220 billion dollars um in a single day is this significant you are uh, you're a you're a perennial observer of the media landscape. Um, for better or worse, the New York Times is the authority. The fact that 10 million people are willing to pay for news, isn't that encouraging? Uh, I mean, that's definitely encouraging. I like to see news sites do well. I wish more of them were doing well. The, the tricky part about the Times success is that during the last decade or so, have we seen so many local news organizations go under and so many regional newspapers and investigative news organizations go under. Um, you know, we've seen, yes, some of the huge brands like Washington Post and New York Times um, do really well. And they're doing great work. You know, the Atlantic has also done well. I think they've probably done the best work uh, in a lot of ways over the last few years. Um, so I'm happy to see them thrive. But it doesn't really lessen the amount that I worry about more local sources 
Um, you know, so we're out here in the Bay Area and we're checking the New York Times every day in the Internet age, but we're checking the San Francisco Chronicle and the Marin Independent Journal a lot less and fewer and fewer people are willing to pay for those sources. So sort of the rise of the centralized big brand is something I'm worried about, even as I'm happy to see the New York Times subscriber numbers going up because they are dealing, at least broadly speaking, in the world of truth and reality, even if they don't get every story right and their tone isn't always something that we love. Uh, the Facebook is a little bit more complicated, their story. I mean, their loss, I know a lot of people on the internet probably feel some schadenfreude towards them today because they took this hit. Um, but I think we have to remember the environment that it's taking place. And for one thing, there's a full-on bloodbath on the NASDAQ and uh, almost every big tech stock is getting crushed over the last month, uh, basically throughout. Well, not Apple, time. not Google. Uh, no, Google had unusually awesome uh, earnings, and Apple is actually very much connected to the drop in Facebook because it was Apple's change in their privacy policy. But don't we want, as as observers of, of online news, you're the, uh, you know, as the the... the managing editor of the internet. Don't we want the Apple model versus the, the Facebook model? Isn't the Apple model, even if we don't love everything about Apple, isn't the Apple model better that they're not continually watching us, whereas Facebook is the, uh, the, the operational platform of surveillance capitalism? Uh, well, in terms of news and what I focus on, I'm more focused on the fact that Facebook has created a platform that... Um, rewards the sharing of fake news. It's both easier to share uh, because when you make up a story, you can sort of adapt that story to what people want to hear. So it's a much easier story to get likes for than one that has to be constrained by the truth. Uh, it travels much faster on than real news does on social media, particularly Facebook. MIT did an interesting study a couple of years ago and showed how much more quickly false stories move uh, through social media than real stories. And for some reason, it also tends to give the sharer more satisfaction um, to share that fake news. So that, that's the area where, in terms of the news discussion that I... I really worry about more in terms of Facebook's um, allowing of that platform to reward bad behavior and democracy challenging behavior. Um, in terms of which company I'm a bigger fan of, I'm definitely a bigger fan of Apple, but it, it is worth noting that the Apple privacy changes that they made are a big reason why Facebook is taking a huge hit on the market today. People were worried about it and now they see the reality of it. Um, I don't think that uh, Google is any less interested in advertising to you than Facebook is. So sometimes these personal corporate infights between companies have a bigger impact. There is a big difference, isn't it? there, Dave? I do want to come on to your book. Between the Apple model where they sell us phones or iPads and the Google Facebook model where they give us their products for free and sell advertising around us and build uh, advertising data, highly sophisticated data businesses. And for people who 
I think people who care about privacy, but also people who care about news, the Apple model is better, even if you know, Apple obviously is ultimately no more trustworthy as a tech company than the other two. It just has a different business model. Oh, yeah. No, I, I don't think there's any doubt that um, the social media platforms are much less trustworthy, much more damaging to democracy and much more worrisome, Facebook in particular. Um which is why I think so many people that don't hold stock in Facebook are like having a great day today saying, oh, they finally got theirs. I'm just not quite sure that that's really true or that they won't come back and figure out a way around this. I am talking with uh, Dave Pell, the managing editor of the Internet, as well as the author um, of, a, of a wonderfully warm, um, uplifting and also and quite emotional book, Please Scream Inside Your Heart, his book about 2020. Uh, Dave, we're going to take a short break. And afterwards, uh, I want to talk specifically um, about the book. So we'll be back in about 60 seconds, everyone. Hold tight. Hi, everyone. Andrew here again. I'm not sure if you're listening or watching or even reading about this Keenon show. I certainly hope you're enjoying it, but I wanted to remind you that there are many different ways you can use to enjoy my Keenon show. The first, of course, is by, in a very traditional way, subscribing to the audio-only podcast. You can do this um, using Apple or Spotify or CastBox or many of the other traditional uh, podcast distribution platforms. We're on all of them. And if you want to access uh, all the podcasts together, you can go to my LitHub page um, in their podcast section, which is dedicated to all the interviews. Uh, if you're into watching this, as opposed to simply listening, um, if you follow me on Twitter at AJ Keen, you can watch these shows live uh, and you can do the same um, if we're connected uh, on LinkedIn. I'm not on Facebook. I'm not a great fan of Facebook, but LitHub is. And on their LitHub live page, you can watch these shows live as well. Um, in terms of uh, recorded videos, uh, not live, you can see all the shows on the LitHub YouTube page. So whatever your preference, whatever your taste, whether it's video or audio or text, there's no excuse for not watching or listening to my show. Now back to Keenon. We're back with Dave Pell, the author of Please Scream Inside Your Heart. I keep on thinking it's Please Scream Inside Your Head, but Dave is a a heart guy, I'm probably a head one. Um, so if I wrote that kind of book, it would please scream inside your head, which probably is an inappropriate title. Um, last year, I had the nature writer David Gessner on the show, wrote a wonderful book about what he got up to in 2020, channeling Thoreau. Dave's book um, is very different. Um, Dave is not channeling uh, Thoreau, I guess he's channeling himself and his family. Dave, why the book? Why a book about 2020? And does 2020 seem as significant a year today in 
early February 2022 as it did perhaps uh, in 2020 itself? Um, well, I'll take the second question first. I think it actually is as significant, seems as significant and maybe even more significant because when we look back, so many of the issues that rose in 2020 and came to the fore are really still battlegrounds today and will continue to be for several years to come. So I sort of see, I wish things like Omicron didn't make the pandemic continue as long as it has. But in terms of the political and cultural um, issues that emerged and sort of engulfed us in 2020, I would say that that was the year that Americans sort of picked a side. There were corporations that picked sides. There were uh, parts of government that pick sides and there were why, why in 2020 sides. hadn't they picked sides before what happened in 2020 to make it such a significant year uh well no, the build-up for sure had been happening depending on how you want to look at it for decades or at least during the four years um of trump's rule um misrule but, rule or misrule there yeah rule or misrule depending on which side you're on um but 2020 was really a year where it came to a head because it didn't just affect the news or politics. It affected the air we breathed and our personal health and our personal families. And it really became um, all-encompassing, the news of Trump. And during the year, you saw certain moments like the when Black Lives Matter emerged and protesters took to the streets. Um, you began to see... Uh, hints of organizations or even corporations that didn't usually choose sides began to choose sides at least subtly um you began to see people become much more politically uh vocal um you began to see people become much more obsessed with these issues because we were all locked home and focused on it so i sort of saw 2020 not as a standalone year and it's really just a hook uh or a base for my book, which is about our broader relationship with each other and more specifically with the media. Um, but I do think it, it holds a special, um, a special role in uh, our history, um, like very few other years. Um, why I wrote I, I the book- I have to admit, I'm not, I mean, I think it's a wonderful book and I think obviously 2020 is gonna be remembered. I'm not convinced though. I mean, the most important thing that happened in 2020 uh, was in January, 2021. Uh, I mean, it seemed important at the time, but doesn't it reflect the fact that we we live in this weird age where everything we go through seems to be so significant and then the next minute or the next second or the next day it goes away and we instantly forget it. So we live both in a time of the eternal present and a time of horrible amnesia. Um, when you say the worst thing happened in January, which which item are you referring to? I'm thinking about the, uh, the, the, the January 6th. I mean, the most historically significant. Oh, yeah. January 6th. You mean in 2021? Right. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I would I think you could argue uh, that the pandemic was as, as historically significant as that. But my book, interestingly, I do uh, because 2020 was so crazy. I do carry it through the inauguration of Joe Biden. So I give uh, I call right. it December 51st, 
It's so a lot of twenty-twenty, like uh, historians have always referred to eighteen forty-eight, the year of revolution in Europe, as a long year. They begin in eighteen forty-seven and end in eighteen fifty, as Marx did. I guess we can call twenty twenty um, uh, a long year. In your description of yourself, uh, you say I've been news obsessed since I was a kid. Um, and that's because of your family, isn't it? And, and, and the most memorable, I think, thing about your book is your description of your family and why news is such a big deal, both for you and your family. What is it about news that has made your family so obsessed with it and brought you up as a news junkie and now a news professional? Yeah, well, uh, both, both of my parents uh, were Holocaust survivors. My dad's not around anymore, but my mom still is. Uh, my mom sort of experienced Kristallnacht from her upstairs bedroom in Germany and eventually uh, escaped to France where she grew up in a children's home with an amazing an amazing guy named Ernst Papenek. My dad's story was even more cinematic, really. Uh, he was one and of... And his name, for people watching, yeah, he my had dad's an name. image of Joseph Pell who died, unfortunately, in 2020, a remarkable man looking and in his narrative, a remarkable man. Yeah, he was a great guy and he... Um, when he was a teenager, he was in one of the several ghettos they had moved his family to, uh, as the part of Poland he lived in was, um, shrinking because of all the Jews that were being killed. And at one point, um, his brother got a tip that they were going to combine his ghetto with one, a neighboring ghetto, because there were too few Jews left to warrant needing two. And he, his brother told him to hide in a barn and to meet him, to knock at midnight on the wall and that they would try to escape. And a Ukrainian soldier who was working for the SS searched the barn. My dad was hiding behind some hay and somehow the guy didn't find him. Uh, at this point, my dad is, you know, a teenager. And when he knocked for his brother, uh, his brother wasn't there. And so at that point, my dad knew that he would be the only member of his family and one of the few members from his whole community, really, to survive the Holocaust. And he he, uh, he wrote a book. Um, yeah. Fred Rosenbaum, Taking Risks, A Jewish Youth in the Soviet Partisans and His Unlikely Life in, Canada, in, in California. Um, and I guess it's your father, your, your parents, but particularly your father's shadow hangs over this book, both because he died in 2020, but because his wisdom, his sensibility seems to have affected your sense of the historical significance of 2020 is that fair right yeah it's it was both his sense sensibility and also just the words he said he was a man of very few words especially when i was growing up that's when we were watching a lot of news together he said probably about 20 words uh during the 70s and 80s during my coming is, of is age that, do you think because he was himself a holocaust survivor and very hard for men who went through such such a such a, a nightmare to actually talk, perhaps, especially with children? Um, yeah, it, it could have something to do with that. I think that was also his general demeanor. Um, although, as he got older and shared more of his stories from his youth, he became a lot more talkative. So I think there's definitely an element of that in there. Um, and you have something in the book about getting your son to read his book to for, for, so so your son could experience what the, the, the nightmare, and we use that word often too liberally, it's a true, it's a, as nightmare as anything could ever be of what your father lived through during the Second World War. Yeah, yeah. I was really going back and forth about that 
issue because at the time I was thinking about this, my son was only nine and my dad's book, well, um, heroic and uplifting, the second half of it is actually about him thriving in America, uh, is obviously horrifying also because there's a lot of death and he was the only survivor in his family. So I was going back and forth about whether or not to read that to my, my son and a friend of mine, who's actually a congressman named Jim Himes, uh, was talking to me and I mentioned this issue that I was having and he sort of said, stop talking to me, go home, get the book, start reading it to your son. You'll be sorry if you don't. And I did do that. And it sort of made me think a lot about the way we discuss information. We're seeing a lot of books being banned because of various reasons in America and sort of the thought that certain ideas might be too dangerous for children, you know? And I think before I made this decision, I sort of worried that maybe reading my dad's story would be too much for my son. But then when I started reading it, I was reminded that my dad was really the same age as my son when he was experiencing How old, how old is your son? Uh, my son is 15 now, but at this time he was only nine. So, uh, yeah. you know, these are the years, his youth, when he's thinking about or hearing about my dad's stories were the years my dad was experiencing these horrors. So if my dad could experience it, my son can definitely hear about it. Dave, we had, um, I don't know if you know him, he's a very distinguished American physicist, Leonard Mladau, uh, Mladenau on the show recently. He's written a new book on feelings. He's also um, the son of Holocaust survivors. Um, and he's a very fluent physicist, brilliant scientist. But when he came on the show, I, I mentioned his parents and he grew very quiet. It clearly has had an enormous emotional impact on him. Do you think it's the central thing in your life in terms of your own upbringing and sense of self or lack of sense of self? Um, yeah, I, I like to say that the, the, the most significant events in my life happened before I was born. And I think that's, that's sort of the way to describe it. It's not that um, every minute that's all we talked about. Um, and it's certainly my, neither of my parents are huge fans of the theory that this type of trauma can be passed down through DNA. You know, I think if anything, my dad felt the opposite, that there's no way that a person like me from Marin County growing up in America could ever understand, really understand what he went through, which makes the loss of his own siblings and community and parents all the more bad. You know, nobody who really knows you can see what you've done with your life or made of yourself. Um, but the overall sadness, guilt, regret, um, that stuff definitely is a shadow that I think has a huge impact on the children of anybody who's survived something. And in monumental. a sense, and, and, I, and, I, and I use this term carefully, uh, sensitively as I can, we're all children of that generation because it's had an enormous impact whether or not we're actually formally related. There was a, a BBC news piece uh, last week about there are only, I think, being seven, uh, a, set of, a, a tiny handful of, 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 US, uh, of, of Holocaust survivors in the UK remain. And over the next five or 10 years, they're all going to go away. What are we going to lose when the final Holocaust survivor passes away, Dave? What wisdom, what sensibility, what, what should we fear? What do we need to tap from these people while they're still alive? 
Yeah, well, I think one of the one of the things I felt compelled, you asked me earlier why I wrote the book, and it really was because of this moment with my dad, which I think explains this uh, issue that you're bringing up. Um, he had been complaining for a long time about Trump, but to understand those complaints, you have to understand that he's not, he's about as far as you could have gotten from a liberal snowflake. He was probably a Republican for most of his life. Uh, what do you mean probably? You never asked him? Uh, you know, it's a different world now. We assumed he was voting Republican, but no, we never, uh, you never, we never asked it up at the time when I was a kid. Later you never in asked life, him when he was older, who he voted no, la for? Later in life, I, I could probably tell, but I convinced him to move over a little to the left. But uh, this was something. So he would was, have been an Eisenhower voter or uh, uh, probably um, perhaps even Reagan. Yeah. Yeah. He would go with the guy more than the uh and the policies he didn't really care much about which party they were from which sounds really like about as foreign as an idea as anybody can think of these days but he was warning he i mean he fought in the partisans he survived because he was able to get a gun um he was a very successful guy uh and a pretty conservative guy uh in america so he was really the least hysterical person i've ever met and so when he would issue warnings about what was happening to America, I took it really seriously because it was the first time in my life, in my 50s, that he ever issued those warnings. The first one came when Trump was running in 2015, where he um, said, hey, you know, this guy's speeches remind me a lot of Hitler's speeches in the early days. And everyone laughed at him, too. So take it seriously. Um, you think he's right, though? You're a, you know... Uh, we had a, a show with Judy Battalion, and she's written a wonderful book on female uh, resistance uh, to 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 the, to the Germans, female versions of your father. But for that generation, for better or worse, is it, it it's impossible to get out of that mind frame if you've lived through such terror, such a horrific series of events in your life, mass murder on a, on a scale that no one could have ever imagined. It, it's hard to liberate yourself from that isn't it yeah i i would think generally yes the reason i was trying to explain my dad's personality was because for him i don't think so because he certainly his worldview was shaped by his experiences but he was a fighter uh he was you know did not see himself at all as a victim um he uh you know had huge success in his life and thought that a person could achieve anything. And, you know, I was with him for 50 years before he ever hinted that anything in America reminded him of anything of his youth. And he wasn't suggesting that we were on the way to another Holocaust. He was merely suggesting that the language being used by Trump and the arguments reminded him of some of the early arguments that Hitler was doing, and, and really importantly and critically, that people were laughing it off in the early days of Hitler. Um, later, uh, as he became more and more worried about what was happening to American democracy, and he accurately predicted many things about Trump, the, even the ones that took place after he died, like his refusal to leave office and his efforts to overturn the election and his refusal to ever admit that he lost. Um, you know, he was really chagrined that more Americans weren't taking to the streets and protesting and didn't seem aware of the, 
the danger of what was happening in terms of democracy slide. Again, not in terms of us heading towards a Holocaust, but just in terms of us heading away from democracy. And one day um, he was complaining about that. And I said, you know, I don't think anybody in America, they take it seriously, but they don't think what happened to you could ever happen here. And he stopped and said, yeah, but do you think when I was a kid, you think we ever thought it could happen to us there? And that was really the moment that I decided to write the book. And I wanted to sort of channel these warnings. And you asked, what are we losing when we lose uh, the not only survivors? I don't even like to really call my dad a Holocaust survivor. I really think of him as a fighter. Um, but, you know, what we lose is the is the vantage of those who have seen it, this story before. What we what we lose is the people who have seen the worst of history. Um come into their lives and it's a lot different if i say hey uh our democracy is in danger or this guy sounds a lot like hitler you know i'm going to be written off as a liberal snowflake um and i don't like it when people make those comparisons myself even as a, a survivor's child but when my dad makes those warnings a survivor in general and him in particular uh i really take it seriously and i and i do worry um that the rise in authoritarianism and the shift to the right, both in America and maybe more dramatically in Europe that we're seeing, is actually not coincidentally coming at a time when we're losing the last few people who witnessed uh, the 30s and 40s firsthand. Someone will write a novel they probably already have. They did it about the Civil War, about the last, um, the death of the last Holocaust survivor. I just hope it's a good novel. Uh, we've had, uh, Dave, a couple of people on the show recently predicting American Civil War. Stephen Marsh, the very um, controversial Canadian journalist, and Barbara Walter, who's political scientist, a little bit more optimistic. Do you think if there is an American Civil War in the, in the 2020s, that 2020 will be seen by historians as the key year where it kind of broke out or began? Um, I hope and don't think we're going to have a, what people think of when they think of a civil war, but I do think 2020 was a key year. I mean, of course, the years that led up to it, to that building point, for sure, but I do think 2020 will be seen as this sort of pivot point, uh, like I said, when Americans picked a side. I think in a weird way, we are in a form of civil war already, and it's a, um, a cultural one a cultural one and an information one. We're so separated, um, you know, in the shows we watch, in the news we consume. Yeah, you, um, I know you, you think that CNN and MSNBC and Fox, they're obviously represent very different political opinions, but basically they're the same thing. They're continual opinion and chat, no hard news. So I had John Carl on the show, political correspondent who wrote a book, Front Row at the, the Trump show, but we're all watching one show or another, Dave, aren't we? That's what you're saying, whether it's the Trump show or the Biden show. It's hard to avoid the show these days. Yeah, I mean, the the vacuum that was filled in 2020, especially in that moment where we lost sports and we lost uh, live events and we lost going out, it, Trump went from being sort of the biggest show on earth to the only show on earth. Um, and it was really overwhelming and people I know who had no interest in the news historically, even my version of it, uh, were becoming obsessed and overwhelmed by it. Um, I don't really have the 
I don't uh, put in the same buckets CNN, MSNBC, and Fox just for the reason they I do think that they all fall into this trap of just being all opinion, all panel, covering the same story 24-7, uh, not really reporting the news, but just having panels of people talking about the news. Um, and always telling you and telling the audience everything that they want to hear, never, never having a confusing, ambivalent message. Everything is bad right. about the other side and fits into some almost religious narrative about the world and America and all the rest of it. Yeah. In general, I think if we had no cable news, uh, it would be a huge benefit to American society. Um, if we're going to have cable news, I wish that the MSNBCs and CNNs of the world did more straight up reporting like they used to uh, in their early iterations, especially they need CNN. To get you on, Dave. You need to be more on it. I wonder how much has really changed. I big fan of Neil Postman's uh, 1985 book, Amusing Ourselves to Death, which was a critique of television, public discourse in the age of show business. Has anything really changed since Postman or even pre-Postman since Daniel Bell and Christopher Lash and the other cultural critics of uh, post-war American media capitalism? Uh, I think things have changed. Did those moments that were described there and those decades that led to this one lead to that? Definitely. Um, the, the big change I see is this idea that uh, wholesale invention of a reality can actually be an effective way to um, gain viewers, increase ratings, and actually move the public. And this piece really has to do with our divide um, in America that I think is different than it was before. It's on every single level, you know, we don't watch the same shows um, on television. The NFL really is one of the few areas that we share in common still. Uh, we don't listen to a lot of the same music. Uh, we don't follow the same news. And therefore, when things happen, we have no shared uh, sort of basis for reality. It's fine if people disagree. Um, I don't really have any problem with uh, Republicans writ large or Democrats writ large, but as long as both sides are dealing in some form of reality and interacting with each other and at the core have some thought that the benefit for all of us is greater than the benefit for half of us. Um, now, there's, of course, a lot of parties that play into this both political and media related. You think we need to reintroduce busing, Dave? Maybe bus in some Republicans to Marin County? You know, it's so funny that you bring that up because uh, when I first started using the internet back in the earliest days, uh, post CompuServe and AOL, um, I started this um, program called The Learning Bridge. And it was basically a site where teachers and students could exchange uh, lesson plans and essays and discuss books and different topics. And the way I described it to people was that it was busing without the buses. Um, I really did hope and uh, believe to a certain extent that the internet was going to be this tool that broke down walls between people. And you weren't alone, There were many, many other people, particularly yeah, in the room no, County, I wasn't the only one. San Francisco, where I am believing that. Dave, um, 
don't know if you're a fan of CNN, but uh, your family was, and uh, your parents particularly loved Fareed Zakari. You begin with a, a very warm anecdote about Fareed uh, wishing, I think it was your mother, happy birthday. Uh, you had a friend of a friend who asked Zakaria to do the favor. Um, they were big news junkies, as you say, because of their experience in, in interwar Europe and the Holocaust. Um, Zakaria came out with a book recently, 10 Lessons for a Post-Pandemic World. I'm not going to ask you for 10 lessons for a post-2020 world, but if there's one lesson to come out of your book, your analysis of this historic year, uh, breaking news and nervous breakdowns in the year that wouldn't end or year that probably still hasn't end. What's that lesson, do you think? Um, I think there's probably two big ones. One True. is one is in, our, in terms of our relationship with the media. I think people need to remember that the first goal and job of any media organization, whether it's the New York Times or CNN or Fox News, is to convince you of the inherent value of news. And it is important to be well-informed and to know what's going on in your community and your country, but it is not important to be watching this stuff 24-7. It's not important to be getting news notifications on your phone uh, like you're Batman and you're going to go and solve the mudslide somewhere 3,000 miles away. You know, the only time you need a news notification on your phone is if something's happening within like 18 feet of where you're standing. But that sort of drive that we have to feel like we need to be connected with the news every minute is a result of marketing. You know, the same media that criticizes Facebook and Twitter for trying to addict you to their technology are trying to addict you to their product as well. So that would be one thing is to, you know, and, and I'm not, it's a do as I say, not do as I do thing. Um, you know, I, I am a news addict, but I don't advise that behavior. It's sort of like those old scared straight documentaries they used to show when they'd bring a kid to prison to uh, have a prisoner tell them what's going to happen if you stay on this road. You know, I, I'm sort of that prisoner. I, I advise people to, take news in more uh, sporadic doses. Yeah, and I, I, one of the things that's always struck me about Trump is he is a, a vehicle of that, but he's also a victim of it. Whenever he talks, it's as if he's always just got off his phone and, oh, well, this, this is up. This is what's happened. This is breaking news. He's clearly imprisoned by that culture. He's manifesting it as well, but he's not in control of it. He doesn't really know what he's articulating in a historical sense. He's a complete prisoner of that um, sort of epistemological sense of participating in, in a story that's changing every second and he's following it on his telephone, on his smartphone. Yeah, no, in, in that way, I think, and in many other ways, you know, what attracted people to Trump that liked him was that he was this sort of representative of many of our vices, our um, darkest vices or yeah. our most disturbing, weird devices. And secondly, Dave, the second lesson? The, the second one would just be that I, I want people to take away from the book that um, ultimately, if we're going to break this um, impasse we're at, if we're going to move forward as a unified country, at least partially unified, we've got to figure out a way to become less divided, whether it's online, whether it's in person, wherever it is. Because ultimately, when people are separated, it's just so easy to caricature them and to give a, a, a picture of them that makes them seem either dangerous or foolish or crazy, which is what we see done on both sides constantly these days. 
you know, I've never met a person in real life that I hate as much as the caricature of a Trump voter that I've experienced. But when I'm actually with a person who might be a Republican or might have different views as, than I do on gun control or different issues, I almost immediately find areas where we connect and where we have commonality. But when you have the absence of those areas and the absence of that connection from every level, rich and poor, geographic, political, uh, racial, religion, when, when everybody is separated, it makes the negative messages have a vacuum that they can just easily fill. Um, and even just to, as we close to take it back to the Holocaust one more time, you know, the, the ghetto was invented by Hitler. And one of the big benefits of putting all the Jews in ghettos was that then the messaging that was so terrible about the Jews and blamed the Jews for all of the problems in the world uh, took hold so much more fiercely when there were no Jews in sight. Before that, they had to contend with the fact that somebody would see that messaging or hear it and say, well, my neighbor is a Jew. Uh, he seems like a pretty good guy. I work with three Jews. They seem cool. But once you create that vacuum and have the absence of actual content, contact, um, it's, it's just an open field for guys like Trump and people on the other side who seek to divide us uh, based on these totally false caricatures. Wise words from uh, the author. Please scream uh, inside your heart, breaking news and nervous breakdowns in the year that wouldn't end. It's a very funny book. I forced Dave to be too serious probably in this show. It's a, it's a laugh out loud book and a cry out loud also. It's well worth reading. Uh, he's, uh, he, he, he bears his soul. He bears his family. Dave, uh, another book to read in these years. Since it's my birthday, I'm going to award myself one. And since we are talking about the Holocaust, um, I would suggest everyone on right and left read uh, Primo Levi's If This Is a Man, best book written in the Holocaust. I don't know if it's about the Holocaust. I don't think you can really write a book about the Holocaust. It's too big. It's too complicated. But it's a magnificent book, and I would strongly suggest people read it. What else, Dave, would do you have on your reading list? Uh, on my reading list are a few different ones. For nonfiction, I think I would advise everybody to read Empire of Pain by Patrick Radden. Yeah, I've, I've had Patrick on the show. He's very good, and that's an important book. Yeah, yeah. It's about the Sacklers and the opiate crisis. But even more interestingly, at least to me, it was about the earliest days of pharmaceutical marketing, which was sort of invented by the grandfather. And it really makes you think, especially in a culture where we may not all be addicted to opiates, but almost all of us are taking some kind of prescription drugs. And it's really interesting to look back. And uh, Patrick is, uh, I would say, genius or borderline genius. So he does an incredible job of yeah, telling this story. Um, I'm also rereading uh, A Visit from the Goon Squad on the novel side by Jennifer, Jennifer Egan. Egan. Yeah, that's a good book. And it's an amazing book. And it talks a lot about the passage of time. That is the goon squad is time. And which is something that I think is on all of our minds these days. And also she's uh, her sequel to that book is coming out in just a couple months. It's called the candy store. So it seems like a good time to catch up with those characters. And before we find out what they're up to now. Well, Jennifer Egan's The Goon Squad, uh, the Goon Squad is, is, is a good note to end on. Uh, Dave Pels, please uh, scream inside your heart. Uh, an unusual title to an unusual book about an unusual year. Dave, congratulations. And uh, 
love to have you back on the show because you have lots more to talk about uh, as we try to reinvent the internet or our media to bring people together rather than divide them. Keep well. Uh, when's your birthday, by the way? Have you back on on your birthday? We'll do a uh, birthday. Mine is not. Mine is not until December 19th, but happy birthday okay, to you. We'll put and, a note uh, in your yeah. calendar and we'll be back on on your birthday and we can talk more about all these important subjects. Keep well, Dave. Keep writing. Keep sending people to important news. We need guys like you. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me.